Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Europe. And once again, I have Sven Longshanks here with me to discuss the Druids and early British Christianity. Today is Sunday, February 1st, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Our thesis is that the Druids, who actually had a lot of the... um, a lot of the learning and the customs of the ancient Levites, because the early British people certainly were Hebrews, the Druids had faded into oblivion after the first century AD because Christianity was already in Britain and they had accepted Christianity and become Christians. We have, um, but one thing I'd like to point out today, and I will in the course of this of, of this presentation, is that there are very few records of, of British history in between the first century and the time that the Anglo-Saxon and, and British, Celtic British, started writing their own histories, and, and they become extant, that there may be a few British writings from before that, but the the, the popular and well-known histories, the well-documented histories, really don't come into um, existence until about the 6th and 7th centuries A.D. And even those writers, Bede and, and, and Nennius and others, and Jordanus and Procopius, when they um, talk about early British history, they basically that they basically resort to the first, second centuries, and and the rest of the intervening period is quite sketchy. There are some records, but not many. Hello, Sven. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Bill. Uh, praise Yahweh and love your race. I'm uh, glad to be here once again. Um, and yeah, I, I think you summed up our thesis quite well there. That, um, we think that the, the Druids just naturally uh, evolved into Christianity, and that there was a period Christians and Druids around, and they were using the same places. I'm sorry, you're breaking up. You're breaking up. Okay, is that better? Yes. Is that better? Yeah. I got it fixed. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just say I, um, I think you summed it up well there that the uh, Druids, basically, they they turned into the Christians. There wasn't any animosity between them, and at the time they were sharing the same area, and the Druidic colleges turned into monasteries. But all their actual Druidic teachings was it wasn't actually written down. So it wasn't until they became Christian that they started writing this stuff down and that wasn't until the fourth or the or the fifth century. It wasn't until the sixth century that you've got Taliesin and the Bard um writing down the triads, which is where we get most of our information on on the Druidic beliefs from. If we want to look at um actual British information on what, what the Druids were like, that's what we need to look at, which is the, uh, these triads that were written by the, the Bards who were 
Druids and bards, but but they had become Christians, so there was crossover at the time. I think you've got some um, classical uh, writers. What they were saying about the Druids today, haven't you? Haven't you, Bill, to start with? Right, we're going to begin today's program, and and Spence Wright, the the earliest British writings available to us are are the Welsh triads, and and similar writings that predate um, Nennius and Gildas and Bede. However, the, even those aren't really voluminous, as far as I know. We have, um, to begin today's presentation, a survey of what the classical historians and, and Romans had said about the Druids. This is important to understand. In presenting this, I also hope to dispel at least a couple of myths about the Druids, which I will explain as I proceed. The first citation I have is from Julius Caesar, from the Gallic Wars, from Book 6, Chapter 13, according to the Loeb Library numbering of Julius Caesar. Throughout all Gaul, there are two orders of those men who are of any rank and dignity. For the commonality is held almost in the condition of slaves, meaning the common people and dares to undertake nothing of itself, and is admitted to no deliberation. The greater part, when they are oppressed either by debt, or the large amount of their tributes, or the oppression of the more powerful, give themselves up in vassalage to the nobles, who possess over them the same rights without exception, as masters over their slaves. But of these two orders, one is that of the Druids, the other, that of the knights. The former are engaged in things sacred, conduct the public and private sacrifices, and interpret all matters of religion. To these, a larger number of the young men resort for the purpose of instruction. And they, the Druids, are held in great honor among them. For they determine respecting almost all controversies, public and private. And if any crime has been perpetrated, if murder has been committed, if there be any dispute about an inheritance, if any about boundaries, these same persons decide it, and they decree rewards and punishments if anyone, either in a private or public capacity, has not submitted to their decision. They interdict him from the sacrifices. This among them is the most heavy punishment. <clears throat> Those who have been thus interdicted are esteemed in the number of the impious and the criminal. All shun them and avoid their society and conversation, lest they receive some evil from their contact, nor is justice administered to them when seeking it, nor is any dignity bestowed on them. Over all these druids presides one, who possesses supreme authority among them. Upon his death, if any individual among the rest is preeminent in dignity, he succeeds. But if there are many equal, the election is made by the suffrages of the Druids. Sometimes they even contend for the presidency with arms. These assemble at a fixed period of the year in a consecrated place in the territory of the Carnutes, which is reckoned the central region of the whole of Gaul. 
hither all who have disputes assemble from every part and submit to their decrees and determinations. The, this institution is supposed to have been devised in Britain and to have been brought over from it into Gaul. And I would add that that's a supposition by Caesar and it's a, a Roman one. And now, those who desire to gain a more accurate knowledge of that system generally proceed thither for the purpose of studying it, meaning to Britain. In chapter 14, Caesar writes, the Druids do not go to war. Now, now if, if, if um, we compare this to the Hebrew Bible, this describes the Levites almost perfectly. This is except for the elections because, of course, the um, Levitical priests in Israel had a high priest who, who was high priest by descent, except for that, where the Druids elected or fought for the, the right to be the leader, except for that one detail. This, everything here Caesar, uh, Caesar describes of the Druids could be applied directly to the Levitical priesthood, and it, it's right on the money. The Druids do not go to the war, neither did the Levites, nor pay tribute together with the rest. They have an exemption from military service and a dispensation in all matters. Induced by such great advantages, many embrace this profession of their own accord, now, of course, the Levites in Palestine were tribal. And, and here Caesar is saying that men other than those of a particular tribe may elect to become Druids. That would be another major difference, of course. Many are sent to it by their parents and relations. They are said there to learn by heart a great number of verses. Accordingly, some remain in the course of training 20 years nor do they regard it lawful to commit these to writing. Though in almost all other matters, in their public and private transactions, they use Greek characters. That practice they seem to me to have adopted for two reasons, because they neither desire their doctrines to be divulged among the mass of the people, nor those who learn to devote themselves the less to the efforts of memory replying on writing, since it generally occurs to most men that in their dependence on writing, they relax their diligence in learning thoroughly and their employment of the memory. They wish to inculcate this as one of their leading tenets, that souls do not become extinct. <clears throat> and many other Greek historians have commented uh, on the... Uh, Celtic and Germanic believe in the immortality of the human spirit, the, the spirit of man. That souls do not become extinct, but pass after death from one body to another. And that would be an innovation. And they think that men, by this tenet, are in a great degree excited to valor, the fear of death being disregarded. They likewise discuss and impart to the youth many things respecting the stars and their motion, respecting the extent of the world and of our earth, respecting the nature of things, respecting the power and the majesty of 
the immortal gods. And Caesar there seems to be relating juridical beliefs and projecting Roman beliefs onto them. The other order is that of the knights. These, when there is occasion and any wars, which before Caesar's arrival was for the most part want to happen every year, as either they, on their part, were inflicting injuries or repelling those which others inflicted on them, are all engaged in war, and those of whom, those of them most distinguished by birth and resources have the greatest number of vassals and dependents about them. They acknowledge this sort of influence and power only. The nation of all the Gauls is extremely devoted to superstitious rites, and on that account they are they who are troubled with unusually severe diseases, and they who are engaged in battles and dangers, either sacrifice men as victims, or vow that they will sacrifice them, and employ the Druids as the performers of those sacrifices, because they think that unless the life of a man be offered for the life of a man, the mind of the immortal gods cannot be rendered propitious. And they have sacrifices for that kind ordained for national purposes. Others have figures of that size, the limbs of which formed of osiers, they fill with living men, which being set on fire, the men perish enveloped in the flames. They consider that the ablation of such as have taken in theft or in robbery or any other offense is more acceptable to the immortal gods. But when a supply of that class, meaning a supply of criminals, is wanting, they have recourse to the oblation of even the innocent. And, and to me, some of this is obvious, very obviously, Roman propaganda. The Druids and all of the Galatahi executed men who were guilty of certain crimes. Even today, the bodies of those who have been executed are found in bogs, and modern so-called anthropologists point to them as some sort of sacrifice victims. Yet the historian Tacitus said in his Germania in chapter 12, Speaking of the punishments of criminals by the Germanic tribes, the assembly is competent also to hear criminal charges, especially those involving the risk of capital punishment. The mode of execution varies according to the offense. Traitors and deserters are hanged on a tree. Cowards, shirkers, and sodomites are pressed down under a wicker hurdle, into the slimy mud of a bog. This distinction in the punishments is based on the idea that offenders against the state should be made a public example of, whereas deeds of shame should be buried out of men's sight. So where you, where you find bog bodies in Europe, and, and the modern anthropologists usually claim they are human sacrifices. According to the testimony of Tacitus, they are criminals who have been punished for cowardice, for shirking their tribal duties, or for sodomy. And, and that would be a deserved punishment. From Diodorus Siculus, and that's about all Caesar says of the Druids, Caesar had first-hand experience in, in um, Gaul during the Gallic Wars. 
and in Britain for at least one short summer. From Diodorus Siculus, from Book 5, Chapter 31 of his Library of History, the Gauls are terrifying in aspect, and their voices are deep and altogether harsh. When they meet together, they converse with few words and in riddles, hinting darkly at things for the most part, and using one word when they mean another, and they like to talk in superlatives, to the end that they may extol themselves and depreciate all other men. They are also boasters and threateners, and are fond of pompous language, and yet they have sharp wits and are not without cleverness at learning. Among them, are also to be found lyric poets whom they call bards. These men sing to the accompaniment of instruments which are like lyres, and their songs may be either of praise or of obloquy. Philosophers, as we may call them, and men learned in religious affairs are unusually honored among them and are called by them druids. The Gauls likewise make use of diviners, accounting them worthy of high approbation. And these men foretell the future by means of the flight of birds, or cries of birds, and of the slaughter of sacred animals. And they have all the multitudes subservient to them. Augury has been known from ancient Greece and Mesopotamia as well. Augury is the study of the flights of birds, or the cries of birds, or even the capture and, and, and examination of the entrails of birds. They also observe a custom which is especially astonishing and incredible. In case they are taking thought with respect to, to matters of great concern, for in such cases they devote to death a human being and plunge a dagger into him in the region above the diaphragm. And when the stricken victim has fallen, they read the future from the manner of his fall and from the twitching of his limbs, as well as from the gushing of the blood, having learned to place confidence in an ancient and long-continued practice of observing such matters. And it is a custom of theirs that no one should perform a sacrifice without a philosopher, for thank offerings should be rendered to the gods they say, by the hands of men who are experienced in the nature of the divine, and who speak, as it were, the language of the gods. And it is also through the mediation of such men, they think, that blessings should be sought. Nor is it only in the exigencies of peace, but in their wars as well, that they obey before all others, these men and their chanting poets, and such obedience is observed not only by their friends, but also by their enemies. Many times, for instance, when two armies approach each other in battle, with swords drawn and spears thrust forward, these men step forth between them, and it cause them to cease, as though having cast a spell over certain kinds of wild beasts. In this way, even among the wildest barbarians, does passion give place before wisdom, and air stands in awe of the muses. And, and let me make a few comments, especially on the aspect of human sacrifice among the Gauls and the Druids, that there are many um, instances where 
bodies are found, as I pointed out, the bog bodies especially, that are believed to be sacrifices, but we could tell from the historical accounts that we have, such as Tacitus, that they were actually criminals who were punished for their crimes. Diodorus Siculus is writing about the same time that Julius Caesar is um, conquering Gaul, and, and, and the, the decade or two that followed after the conquest of Gaul and it's very plausible, and, and in fact, it's absolutely certain, that Diodorus Siculus gets his reports from the front lines and from Julius Caesar's propagandists. A lot of what Julius Caesar wrote is indeed pure and factual history, but some of the things Julius Caesar said about his enemies are propaganda in order to instill fear into the hearts of Romans towards the enemies of Rome. We see that same propaganda all the time in, in our own modern history. Wartime propaganda that, after the fact, is almost always found to have been just that, and either exaggerated facts or, or horrendous war crimes which were invented by the press in, in order to vilify the enemy and, and the things really don't turn out to be true. So I would not accept as historical a lot of the comments on, uh, of the Romans on the Gauls and the British on human sacrifice. And that's mostly because it hasn't at all been supported by archaeology and the Romans were seeking to conquer these people and portraying them to Romans as, as savages who needed to be conquered, as a constant threat to the civility and peace of, of the Roman society. So a lot of this concerning human sacrifice may be attributed to the punishment of criminals, and a lot of it may be attributed to simply Roman propaganda. From Strabo's Geography, Book 4, Chapter 4. Among all the Gallic peoples, the Gauls, the Galatahi, if we look at the Greek, generally speaking, there are three sets of men who are held in exceptional honor. The Bards, the Vates, and the Druids. Now, previous writers didn't, didn't really, while the Bards were mentioned, they were, that they were considered in the class of the Druids. They weren't really distinguished from them, as Strabo does here. The bards are singers and poets, the vates, diviners and natural philosophers, while the Druids, in addition to natural philosophy, study also moral philosophy. The Druids are considered the most just of men. And on this account, they are entrusted with the decision, not only of the private disputes, but of the public disputes as well, so that in former times, they even arbitrated cases of war and made the opponents stop when they were about to line up for battle. And the murder cases in particular have been turned over to them for decision. Further, 
when there is a big yield from these cases, there is forthcoming a big yield from the land too, as they think. However, not only the Druids, but others as well, say that men's souls and also the universe are indestructible, although both fire and water will at some time or other prevail over them. Sounds like scriptural prophecy to me. In addition to their trait of simplicity and high-spiritedness, that of witlessness and boastfulness is much in evidence, and also that of fondness for ornaments. They're talking about the Gauls, not the Druids. For they not only wear golden ornaments, both chains around their necks and bracelets around their arms and wrists, but their dignitaries wear garments that are dyed in colors and sprinkled with gold. And by reason of this levity of character, they not only look insufferable when victorious, but also scared out of their wits when worsted. Again, in addition to their witlessness, there is also that custom, barbarous and exotic, which attends most of the northern tribes. I mean the fact that when they depart from the battle, they hang the heads of their enemies from the necks of their horses. And when they have brought them home, nail the spectacle to the entrances of their homes. At any rate, Posidonius says that he himself saw this spectacle in many places, and that, although at first he loathed it, afterwards, through his familiarity with it, he could bear it calmly. The heads of the enemies of high repute, however, they used to embalm in cedar oil and exhibit the strangers, and they would not deign to give them back even for a ransom of an equal weight of gold. But the Romans put a stop to these customs, as well as to all those connected with the sacrifices and divinations that are opposed to our usages. The Romans have, had controlled religion in their empire and throughout the empire. They used to strike a human being whom they had devoted to death in the back with a saber and then divine from his death struggle, similar to what Theodorus Siculus says about the fall of the victim, the shaking of the lambs. But they would not sacrifice <clears throat> without the Druids. We are told of still other kinds of human sacrifices. For example, they would shoot victims to death with arrows or impale them in the temples or, having devised a colossus of straw and wood, throw into the colossus cattle and wild animals of all sorts and human beings and make a burnt offering of the whole thing, sort of like Julius Caesar had described. Strabo, too, while his, the purpose of his geography was to describe the land and the peoples who inhabited it, he went into depth on many of those peoples, and being an armchair geographer, he merely repeated things that he had been told from abroad or heard in other accounts. Suetonius, Lives of the Caesar, Claudius, Part 25, Lives of the Twelve Caesars, I'm sorry. This is, um, his discussion under Claudius Part 25 is relevant to discussions of regulation of religion in the Roman Empire. 
And Suetonius says that he, meaning Claudius, Suetonius is writing about 80 years later, utterly abolished the cruel and inhuman religion of the Druids among the Gauls, which under Augustus had merely been prohibited to Roman citizens. Now, we will see that there are Druids later on in history after the time of Claudius. And in reality, all Claudius did was bar Druidism legally. He could not have possibly extinguished all the Druids. From Pliny the Elder, and Pliny is writing after the time of Claudius, from Book 30, Chapter 4, where he talks about the Druids of the Gallic provinces. He says, this is from Pliny the Elder's Natural History, Book 30, Chapter 4. The Gallic provinces, too, were pervaded by the magic art, and that even down to a period within memory, for it was the Emperor Tiberius that put down their Druids, and actually, once again, he only outlawed Druidism on paper, banned it in the empire. And all that tribe of wizards and physicians. But why make further mention of these prohibitions? With reference to an R, which has now crossed the very ocean and has penetrated to the void recesses of nature, the shores of the British Islands. At the present day, struck with fascination, Britannia still cultivates this art. Now, now, Pliny died, I don't know when exactly he wrote every book of his natural history, but he died in the eruption of Vesuvius in 70, 79 A.D. At the present day, struck with fascination, Britannia still cultivates this art, and that was ceremonial, so august, that she might almost seem to have been the first to communicate them to the people of Persia. To such a degree are nations throughout the whole world, totally different as they are, and quite unknown to one another, in accord upon this one point, and, and Pliny is, of course, comparing the Druids to the Magi in Persia, and, and um, they're related even more closely than Pliny could have imagined. Such being the fact, then, we cannot too highly appreciate the obligation that is due to the Roman people for having put an end to those monstrous rites, in accordance with which to murder a man was to do an act of the greatest devoutness, and to eat his flesh was to secure the highest blessings of health. So Pliny is accusing the Druids of being cannibals as well as sacrificers of human beings. And it's amazing to me that Pliny could even write this in, in the years of, uh, during the time of Nero, when people were being thrown to the lions and, and forced to fight to the death in the Colosseums in large numbers. From Tacitus's Annals, from Book 14, chapters 29 and 30, Tacitus's Annals of Rome were written towards the end of the, um, of the first century and probably not long after Pliny died in Vesuvius. For the present, however, 
Britain was in the charge of Suetonius Paulinus, and, and he's talking about the time of Claudius. And, and this is immediately before the uprising of Boudicca. Britain was in the charge of Suetonius Paulinus in military skill and in popular report, which allows no man to lack his rival, a formidable competitor to Cobrulo, and anxious to equal the laurels of the recovery of Armenia by crushing a national enemy. He prepared accordingly to attack the island of Mona, which had a considerable population of its own, while serving as a haven for refugees. And, and let me say right here, Mona is known in modern times as Anglesey. You will find a lot of claims on the Internet that Suetonius wanted to wipe out the Druids, and that, for that reason he attacked Anglesey or Mona. And that's not accurate at all. Here we see from the pages of Tacitus that Suetonius only wanted to conquer an as of yet unconquered portion of Britain for his own glory, and that's why he attacked Mona. He did not attack Mona to wipe out the Druids, and all of the sources that make that claim never offer a citation in support of it. That could not have been Suetonius's motive for attacking Mona. It's not documented anywhere. Not in Tacitus and not in the other early Roman historian who mentions this very incident, who is Cassius Dio. He prepared accordingly to attack the island of Mona, which had a considerable population of its own while serving as a haven for refugees. And in view of the shallow and variable channel, constructed a flotilla of boats with flat bottoms. By this method, the infantry crossed, the cavalry who followed did so by fording, or in deeper water by swimming at the side of their horses. On the beach stood the adversary, a serried mass of arms and men, with women flitting about between the ranks in the style of furies in robes of deathly back, Black and with disheveled hair, they brandished their torches, while a circle of druids, lifting their hands to heaven and showering imprecations, struck the troops with such awe at the extraordinary spectacle that, as though their limbs were paralyzed, they exposed their bodies to wounds without an attempt at movement. Then, reassured by their general and inciting each other, never to flinch before a band of females and fanatics. They charged behind the standards, cut down all who met them, and enveloped the enemy in his own flames. The next step was to install a garrison among the conquered popu population and to demolish the groves consecrated to their savage cults. For they considered it a duty to consult their deities by means of human entrails. While he was thus occupied, the sudden revolt of the province, meaning the province of the Iceni and the revolt of Boudicca, 
after her estate was plundered and her daughters were raped by the Romans, rather very unjustly. The sudden revolt of the province was announced to Suetonius, and, and he had to leave Mona or Anglesey in order to put down the revolt of Boudicca. Some historians, or rather pseudo-historians, see this incident as some sort of last stand of the Druids, as if all of the Druids of Britain were on this island of Anglesey at this time. That's simply not the picture being drawn by Tacitus. It's not anything which is said by Cassius Dio, who bear, he mentions this um, conquest of Mona by Suetonius at this time, in relation to the revolt of Boudicca, but he doesn't give any details at all concerning the Druids or, or the population of, of Mona. Um, the, the most full account is the one here in Tacitus, and Tacitus only mentions a circle of Druids who, who were present at the battle in, in order to incite the people to the war. That, that's that, that's hardly all of the Druids in Britain. This is hardly the Druids' last stand. But that's the way it's being portrayed by these idiots on the Internet that think they're historians, and they're making up history. They're just conjecturing this. Others claim that Suetonius' motive for the invasion was to wipe out Dru the Druids, but we've seen from Tacitus that's simply not true. They failed to know that after Tacitus, these historians declaim this is the Druids' last stand. It's one of the last historical mentions of Druids. But they failed to note that after Tacitus, there is hardly a history of Britain written from a perspective which was not either Roman or Christian. And there is hardly a history at all which mentions Britain or Ireland in any thorough detail outside of that part of Britain controlled by Rome. And there's hardly any real details from the time of Hadrian on about what was going on in Britain when it was controlled by Rome. There's very few histories of Britain in this period, and, and even fewer of Ireland. And, and Scotland. Both Procopius, the 6th century Byzantine historian, and Jordanus, the 6th century historian of the Goths, know very little about Britain. And both of them, in their own descriptions of Britain, had to turn to writers of the 1st century for what little they did know and record about Britain. So, so the, the, what, what's going on in Britain for these several hundred years is indeed very sketchy. Last week we discussed from the pages of Bede, Gildas, and Nennius, who all lived in the um, 6th and 7th centuries, the historical evidence that Christianity was indeed in Britain in the second century, and almost certainly even before that, right from the beginning, in the days of Tiberius Caesar, and that comes from 
the writings of Minius. Here we have Sven Longshanks to take up with that point. Well, yeah, I'll just um, I'll just mention a few things um, to go along with uh, what you were just saying, going over there, Bill. I mean, I think there's a. Uh, quite a few uh, things that you can point out with that, especially this human sacrifice thing that the, that the Druids were accused of. I mean, there's never ever been any remains of human sacrifice that's ever been found in Britain. And as you pointed out there, at the time, the, the, the Romans had their barbaric games where they were throwing people in to fight against animals and, and fight for the pleasure of it. And I, I do think that, I mean, they, they're quite a pain to point out that these druids were the most just of men and they were, they were judges and they were seen to, and they could, um, you know, just at the drop of a hat, they could stop a battle and, and, and the people would stop fighting and they would obey these, these judges. So they, they really don't seem the type to be engaged in human sacrifice because they seem to be, you know, really quite advanced. And I think the idea of them stabbing people and cutting them up and then reading the future from their entrails, and that reminds me far more of the things that the Vikings were accused of. I mean, some of this, they had a name for it. I think it was a spread eagle or something like that, where they cut open the victim's back and pull all the entrails out and then they would read it. So you've got the same allegation being made about about the Vikings, but obviously that was a lot later on. And when they were talking about um, putting the, the, the victims in wicker work or hurdle work, and then setting fire to them, which is, which is that uh, famous film, The Wicker Man, is based on that religion. But that seems far more to me to be really what the Romans were doing, because all the British people at the time lived in wicker work, hurdle work houses, these villages. And if the Romans were, would um, torch these villages, and you would have you know, the women, the children inside, and the people inside, so... It's, I think that's really a case of the, of the Romans projecting their own actions onto the Druids. And it's the same thing that we see with the way that the, the Jewish Bolsheviks behaved in Russia. And then they projected their crimes onto the German people and accused the Germans of doing that to the Jews in their quote-unquote holocaust. So it, it, I think it's a similar thing to that. It, it's projecting the cry, their own crimes onto, onto their victims. And, and I mean, just to go to that bit, the last bit that you were coming to there about the, um, the massacre of the Druids at Mona. And Mona wasn't actually one of the high seats because the Druids had three high seats of um, Druids where the Arch Druids were, and that was um, Carl's Rock, which was York, Carleon, and Cartroya, which, which was London. And Anglesey isn't mentioned there. I think Anglesey was a it was one of these university monastery places, but it, it certainly wasn't the last stand of, of the Druids. And I, th and I think because the Romans were persecuting both the Druids and the Christians at the time, when the uh, apostles were scattered from Judea, I mean, Britain was pretty much an obvious place for them to go to because they knew they would, they would not be persecuted there. And it, it seems, I mean, the most well-known legend is, uh, is um, of Joseph of Arimathea when he came over. And, I mean, we've got lots of references for that. I mean, that's, that's accepted that uh, 
he came over, you've got, uh, I mean, starting from the later records of it, you've got Polydor Virgil and, and Cardinal Pole in 1555, Council of Pisa, 1417, Council of Constance, 1419, uh, and they said that in the, in the last year of Tiberius Caesar, which is five years after the crucifixion, which is exactly um, when it says, I think it's in Acts, that they, all the apostles were scattered abroad. Uh, going back, you've got uh, Malcolm of, of Flandaf in 450 that wrote that Joseph, the noble decurion, was buried at Avalon. So you've got a, a lot of records to show that Joseph actually came over here. And this, this um, Cardinal Baronius, who people reckon to have been a, a, a very truthful cardinal, and he, he wrote about this, I think it was in the, in the 15th century, um, might have been a bit later, I haven't got an exact date for him, but he looked into this, and, and according to the Vatican manuscripts, in AD, 35 AD, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, Magdalene, Marcella, Maximum, St. Philip, and Joseph of Arimathea were all banished, and they all left Judea in a, in a ship without oars or sails, and they ended up at Marseille. And Philip remained in Marseille, and Joseph came to Britain. And when he came to Britain, Arviragus gave him his 12 hides of land at Glastonbury. And these 12 hides 12 hides of land are mentioned by Malcolm of Flandaf in 450 and it's also mentioned in the Domus Day, which is the Doomsday Book which was written when um, William Norman came over and conquered um, Britain for the Normans and he wanted to uh, tax everything and take records of everything that was owned by people and there's a record there that says that it goes back to ancient times um, these 12 hides of land that were at Glastonbury and the 12 hides of land was, is, was the normal people would get 5 acres of land and the Druid would get 10 acres of land and uh, Joseph was here with uh, 11 of his people with him and they were all given these 10 acres of land they were all treated as if they were Druids they weren't treated as if they were as if they were free men they were given all the rights that, that the Druids had as well they had, they had tribute and they had this land given to them and Arviragus who was the king at the time, he's, he's um, related to Caractacus, who was who really the, the British church in Rome started with Caractacus, and the British church in Britain started with, with Joseph Arimathea and, and um, Alvaragus and, and his family, and they both, the families meet up again later on, but they actually dug up um, Glastonbury village in 1892, and they found that there was these um, wickerwork houses there that they dated back to 50 BC to AD 80 AD. So you've got these wickerwork houses, which is what I was saying earlier. I think that's what the Romans were really talking about when they were setting fire to um, people within these wickerwork houses. That's what it was. It, it was rather than a, a wickerwork man or, or that they were burning, sacrificing to gods with. It was these these houses that they that they lived in. And I've got... I've got um, a few, I've got even earlier references as well. I don't know. Have you have you heard of the Chronicon of Pseudo Dexter, or the Fragment of Helena? They both um, record uh, Joseph Arimathea being in Britain as well. And Archbishop of Saragossa has confirmed the statement of 
erroneous. But this this church that they that they built there, that Joseph Arimathea built, it was the first uh, church above ground that had ever been built anywhere in Europe, and it was it burnt down later on and there was another church built there made out of stone in um, 546 AD and this was built by St. David who's a, a very famous bishop and he was um, the uncle of, of King Arthur so you had all these saints and um, famous saints, a lot of them were, were kings but most of them were all from the royal family as well, which sort of puts pay to this idea that um, early Christianity was an uprising of the slaves the verse that I was mentioning last week that I couldn't remember quite was um, kings shall be thy nursing fathers and queens thy nursing mothers and I think that could be a a subtitle really of um, what we're talking about today because all these early Christians they were were kings and, and it was a royal family um, I've just found again here in my, no- in my notes um, another reference to Joseph of Arimathea and his, his um, tale 12 hides of, of land at Glastonbury and that was the charter of King Ina, a Saxon king in 700 AD. Uh, also we've got, there's, there's nowhere in, Greek, in, in the Greek and Roman martyrologies that mention that um, Joseph died anywhere and they were really accurate with and they were really painstaking to write down everyone that was involved in the Christian story and everyone that was involved in the church to write down exactly when and where they died and there's nothing written about about Joseph and he was a, a very important um, player in, 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 in the story of, of Jesus you know, and he would have been the only one well I mean it was his tomb that uh, that Jesus was put into and where he was a, a noble decurion he was he was quite high up in the Roman aristocracy, so he was, you know, he was well off, and it, you can do more research into it. And he was involved in the tin trade, and you've got you've got records at four separate different places in the in the south of England that, that talk about Joseph being there at, at some point. You've got the, the Mendips Hills um, with, with a pretty church that's dedicated to him. You've got Cornwall, you've got Wales, and you've got Somerset with Glastonbury. So you've got all these records of the time that go right the way back into folklore and legend. Back in the time when you know people weren't writing things down because they had only just brought vellum back to um, Britain. So people weren't really writing things down. But they had, um, they remembered things by rhyme and by memory, which is why we've got folk tales and folk rhymes which talk about Joseph. And they, they must go all the way back there to that to that time. Uh, one of the people that, that came with Joseph was Lazarus, and he's—I think he was mentioned as going back over to Marseille to actually die. But we have a triad of Lazarus, and there's, there's no reason why we would have a triad of Lazarus unless Lazarus had actually been over here in Britain. I mean, I'll, I'll just read this triad out. It's um, believe in God who made thee, love God who saved thee, and fear God who will judge thee. I, I don't know if you want to add anything to my Joseph Arimathea stuff before I go on to um, the royal family that were in, in Rome at the time, which was the other part of early British Christianity, Bill? No, not at all. I've, I've, never, uh, I've never discredited the story of Joseph of Arimathea in Britain. I simply don't teach it because I don't have enough source of truth. I have the research that you've done. <clears throat> yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of books about it. I used to live in Cornwall, and um, 
you, you see hear the names of the churches and um you used to hear these rhymes and people used, used to talk about it I mean, they used to say that the uh, I mean, I'm not sure how accurate this one is but the, the Christmas one they say I, I saw a few ships come sailing in on Christmas day in the morning well, that was supposed to be Joseph Ramathia I don't know how accurate that is but that you know that's what people there used to say but there, there are other um, rhymes that, that, that when uh, they would the tenures the miners there they would they would when they would flash the wolfram um, out of the tin, uh, they would get the uh, out of the ingots. They would, they would get the adulteration to the tin. They would they'd burn that off, and as they burned that off, they would shout, um, "Joseph was in the tin trade." So you, you've got these um, very very early traces of of him actually being there that, that have managed to work their way right the way down till now. But rather, and that I say that so that was AD 38 AD. You've got these legends placing Joseph Ramathia starting the first church in Britain at Glastonbury. There's, there's, I mean, there's also a belief that um, he wasn't actually buried at Glastonbury. He was buried at um, Llandaff, which is where Malcolm of Llandaff wrote about it in 450 AD. Because again, there's a very old church. Um, or the remains of a very old church in Cardiff, that famous bishops came over from the 10th or the 11th century deliberately to be buried there, talking about um, it, being, it was obviously someone very, very important that they wanted to be buried next to, and it, it, the record of it looks like that could have been Joseph as well. So whatever happened, whether it was in Wales or whether it was in Somerset or whether it was in Cornwall, you know, it seems to be saying it definitely did happen because you've got all these different places saying he was in Britain because, you know, he would have moved about a bit. He wouldn't have just stayed where he was. Well, well let me interject. You, you know, it's true that, that Joseph was identified with the tin trade. I believe even by Jerome in the early 5th century AD. And, and it's true that the primary source of tin at the time in the ancient world for a thousand years before Christ was Cornwall and 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 um, Southwest Britain. The the, um, the Joseph of Arimathea story is plausible, and and I'm not going to doubt it in any way. I respect everything that you say about it. But some of the British Israel writers had said some things in relation to it, which are implausible, and 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 that actually serves to discredit or, or or it serves to disencourage or discourage people from seeking the facts out. That there's one st story that I've seen repeated in otherwise scholarly works that, that um and, and it's put forth as truth that Joseph of Arimathea and Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene were, were put in a boat without oars and pushed off into the Mediterranean. And and all by themselves in that boat without oars, they made it to France, crossed France, and went to Britain. And, and I've seen stuff like that repeated by identity Christians, but which people would just dismiss, and they say, oh, that's crazy. And, and there's um, other tales and myths that maybe aren't that incredible, but that are still nevertheless repeated blindly that I would discourage. So I've really done what you've done and looked at all the source material and all of the um, the, the witnesses. It, it's 
difficult for people that haven't studied the subject to actually get a grasp on it and, and sort out the wheat from the chaff, right? There's no doubt that Christians <laughs> should understand that Christianity did reach certain points in Europe before Paul of Tarsus. The proof of that is right in the Epistle to the Romans, that there was a, a, a huge assembly of Christians in Rome, many um, home churches of Christians in Rome that um, Paul had addressed in his epistle, who Paul never introduced Christianity to. Somebody else had brought Christianity to Rome long before Paul ever got to Greece, and, and that's very clear. So there's a wider history of the dissemination of Christianity apart from the book of Acts, apart from the letters of Paul, which isn't very well recorded. It's good, it's good you uh, bring that up, though. I think, you know, I, obviously these these legends, especially the one about the ship without oars, that's obviously been embellished and added upon and given a fantastical sort of edge to it. But that's, so it makes people remember it. It helps people to remember it then. I mean, it obviously didn't just float to Marseille in the ship without oars and sails, but the fact that people, you know, they added that to it so that people would, would remember it. So, that, you know, there's obviously a record that they came to France and they came to Britain. Because also you've got in France, in that area there, you've got churches that are named after them. You've got um, a cave that one of them supposedly lived in. Um, I think the Catholics still parade down to the beach. And, oh, and the gypsies do as well, because one of them, uh, one of the Marys was um, uh, supposedly the saint of the gypsies. So uh, the gypsies have some special ritual that they do. And the, the other Mary, I think it's Mary Magdalene, they supposedly got um, her head as a relic we say encased in silver and they carry this head down to the beach once a year you know it's obviously I mean, it's like a, a, an offshoot of a pagan ritual I mean it's very similar to what you see going on in India with the Hindus parading these idols about but you know they, they say that that's the head of Mary Magdalene and it goes back to when Joseph and, and the Marys and Lazarus went to Marseille so you, you, you they've got um, like relics of these people over there in that part in France and what we've got in Britain is folklore to do with it, churches that have been named after them and um, these charters basically which, which say that this church was given to this noble decurion called Joseph and say the old, oldest actual charter we've got goes back to 450 but these things were repeated you see it was repeated again by King Ingo the Saxon in 700 AD and then in the Doomsday Book in 1086 AD and when it, when it went right the way back to um, King Arviragus uh, giving him this land I, that would have been written down somewhere and then eventually it would have been written down on something a bit more substantial or vellum or whatever and um, that's what it would have been when uh, Malcolm of Landaff wrote it down. So, yeah, I, uh, maybe I should have pointed that out a bit more, that obviously these legends have been embellished upon and they put, had these fantastic points to them. But as I say, it does help you to remember it. Cause, you know, you, you remember that, the, the ship without oars, and then you remember um, the, the names of the people that were, that were in it. But this, the uh, I'd say the other the other church that was that was 
started off at the time it seems to have been the royal fa- the rest of the royal one of, well one of the royal families in Britain which is uh, Caractacus or or Caradoc who's uh, Tertullian recorded his speech but he was taken to Rome in 56 AD uh, where he'd been captured and it was treachery that actually saw him being captured and when he got there he gave this great speech and said well if you're going to go down in history if you let me live as being the one instance of Rome's clemency against one of its enemies um, and people will look up to you a lot more if, if you let me go free rather than um, killing me. Sorry, do you want to add something there Bill? I'm sorry Sven. I'm sorry for the interruption. I apologize. I had started a program on my streaming computer because it's the only Windows computer I have. And and it makes all kinds of noise that I can't shut off. But when you mentioned um you mentioned Tertullian in a speech to Car- the speech of Caradoc. Yeah, is that correct? It was Tertullian who who wrote who um wrote the speech down? Because I, I, in my book it says, in my book it says Tertullian wrote it down, but it, it, might, it might actually be Tacitus. But it, it says that it was 20 years actually after the speech that he wrote it down. So I, I don't know if you can um, put me right on that one exactly what it was. Wait, I, I'm sorry, that threw me. That's why I started this um, this software I have, and that's why it made the noise that I didn't expect the, the introductory music. I'm sorry. That the um, that's why I started the program was to look that up. Actually, Tacitus recorded that speech in in the in the Annals of Rome about book fourteen or fifteen of that, and and um, that speech was recorded about twenty years after it was made. Yes, in the Annals of Rome by Tacitus. Tertullian didn't live until after the end of the second century A.D. Ah, right. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. I haven't, I haven't actually got that here. I just remember it was T, and I, I get all these Roman names mixed up. It's hard to uh, remember them all. So, um, <clears throat> same problem all the time. Well, I mean, it also it just shows you how um, Caractacus was correct in what he said, because the speech was still being remembered 20 years later on down the line when uh, Tacitus wrote it down. But when he was there in uh, in Rome, he was where he where he stayed was actually the Palatium Britannicum, which was eventually. The, I mean, it's acknowledged that that was the first. Christian church in Rome. Uh, it later became the Hospitium Apostolorum and the Saint Pudentiana, and oh, and the Titulus as well. It was also called. But Caradoc was living there, and he was in Rome for seven years. And at the same time, he had hostages there. You know, I think he had his father there, King Bran, and also he had um, his daughter there, who took on the name of. Um, Caesar, so she became Claudia, and she married this uh, Rufus Pudensis. And Rufus Pudensis is is mentioned on a a stone that was dug up again. I think it was nineteenth century. This stone was dug up. It's uh, in an area of Chichester where they discovered an entire Roman palace. And they discovered a stone there, which which was um, saying that this palace to Minerva was donated by this um, Rufus. So so it puts this Rufus Pudens 
Pudentis in um, Britain at the time that uh, Claudia was there in that area at the time, and to say, and uh, Caractacus was in this Palatium Britannicum with his daughter. You've got this record of that. So we've got these, these genealogies of all the. Um, British kings that, that mention the names of these people, and they all tie in with the with the Vatican's records of, of who were the the first Christians in in Rome. I mean, this is, again, this was admitted by this um, Baronius from this manuscript that he had. But um, she married she married Rufus, and Caradoc's sister was Pomponia Gracchina, who was recorded as having a foreign superstition. So that, that was likely, it was very likely that all these people um, were converted to Christianity by, I think this a chap called Pastor Hermas, which uh, I think Paul wrote about as well. And their son, Rufus and um, Claudia's son, would have been Linus. Or was it Caractacus' son was Linus? So either Caractacus' son or, or Rufus and Claudia's son was Linus, that was the... Um, the first bishop of Rome that's written down in the in the Vatican's records as being the first bishop of Rome, and it was either Paul or Peter that would have would have put him in charge of the church. And there's a record, I think, of one of them saying that. But Paul was was actually, from what I've been reading, Paul was freed. Well, he was in Rome at, at 56 AD, and that was where he was staying under his house arrest. And then in 58 AD, he was freed at the same time as um, Caractacus uh, and Bram were freed. And uh, they went, obviously, they went, they went uh, back to Britain at the time. I'm just looking here at my notes. Yeah, I've got Baronius confirms that that is the oldest church in Rome, and that was the first place to entertain Peter and Paul. And that, that was called the Palatium Britannicum. So it was the British church at Rome was, was the first church at Rome, and the British church in Britain that Joseph Arimathea was starting, that was the first actual church building above ground, and this, the first bishop was British, that was this Linus, and the, the proof that we've got of this Linus is the British genealogies and the tradition, apparently there's a, uh, an epistle called Clement's Romanus epistle, which states that Linus was the brother of Claudia, that was it. And Irenaeus, in 180 AD, the apostles built the church at Rome and committed its supervision to Linus, who was this British prince, basically. So it was, it, you know, it started off by, by royalty, you know, Christianity was. In AD 58, Bran returned to Britain, who was um, Caractacus' father, and it, it likely went with him was uh, Aristobulus who was apparently the, the first bishop of Britain. And you, we've got a place called um, Aristoli in Wales, which was named after him in Montgomeryshire. And there's, apparently there's a chap called Nicephorus and Dorotheus, and they record this, this Aristobulus as being the first bishop of Britain. And I've seen um, an icon of Aristobulus, so the Eastern Orthodox church, the Greek church, that's the uh, first bishop that they acknowledge as being the first bishop of Britain, and they've got him down as, as being in the first century. So the Eastern Orthodox Church admit that um, Britain was the first place that Christianity took root. It's um, Rome that has tried to supplant that and hide it and, and make out that uh, Rome has got priority over all the other churches. 
and there's, there's other legends that it was at this time that Paul may have visited Britain. Well, I don't think there was as much evidence for Paul being in Britain as, as there is for um, this uh, Linus being the British prince, and there is for Joseph of Arimathea being in Britain. I mean, Paul could have come to Britain at this time, and it says that he went to the Isles in the ocean, and there's mention of the Western Isles, and it's plausible that he did come here, and it was only here that uh, you know, he knew he would be safe. Christians were safe in Britain, whereas they were being persecuted uh, in Rome, and as I say, the apostles all had to to leave Judea. There was a lot of trouble going on there, so he, you know, he could have actually come over to Britain. There's apparently the great abbey at uh, Bangor was. They say that it was uh, founded by St Paul, but I, I'm not sure that it's that old. This is quite something interesting. This reminded me of. Um, uh, what was written above the gates at Auschwitz is Arbic Mark Frey. Um, this, what's written above the gates at the Abbey at Bangor is, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. Which I think, you know, it's, it's a good phrase, that. You know, people do have to work. They shouldn't be um, trying to get by off what other people do. Well, right. I have a couple of small issues, and, and the first one... And I understand that British historians have, as recently as the, the, the late 19th century, British historians have made the error of identifying Pomponia Grahicina as a relation of Caradoc or Caractacus. I do understand that. But they've overlooked the fact that Tacitus, the historian who told us about Caradoc, at the same time, also told us about Pomponia Rahicina, and she is a scion of a noble Roman family. She's the daughter of a Roman nobleman. She, she wasn't related to Caradoc, except that she did marry Rufus Pudens. There is a connection with her through, through that... Um, I'm sorry, Pomponia Grahicina did not marry Rufus Pudens. Claudia did. Claudia is definitely British. Claudia is very likely a daughter or relation of Caractacus. That can be accepted. And they were also related to Linus, even by Paul of Tarsus. And Linus, if you look at the... Um, the Roman Catholic claims concerning popes, Linus is usually listed, I think, third in the list of popes, even though there were no popes at that time. He was a bishop in Rome, a Christian bishop in Rome. So that's no doubt. And he was very likely British, and that's no doubt the, the, um, a, a relation to Rufus and Claudia, very possibly their son, and that's very plausible. But Pomponia Grahicina, who was tried by her husband as a Christian for the foreign superstition, as Tacitus called it, and absolved of that, he, he refused to find her guilty. Even if she may have been, he refused to find her guilty. And, and um, that's Roman law that when a woman's accused, she's tried by her husband at that time. And... and um, 
she's not. She was a Roman woman. She was not related to um, Caractacus, but must have been, because her husband served in Britain, she must have been familiar with Christianity in the form of Rufus and Linus and, and, and Claudia. It's very likely that she was acquainted or knew those people. I have no doubt. So it's rather sort of over-egging the cake to say that uh, Pompeia Gratina was, was uh, related to Caractacus. I, I think it's fairly sort of incidental to the story anyway. I think the important thing is, is Claudia being married to um, Rufus and Linus being the first, first bishop. Right. That's absolutely true. It's incidental to the story, but I just felt that I had to make the connection. Uh, I would fail it. That, that I had to make the correction. I would be failing if I didn't. That the, um, the, the, some of the British historians, when, when all of this information was discovered, some of them got carried away a little with it, like the story about the boat, right? But, but Tacitus talked about Pomponia Trahicina and, and actually mentioned her at length and recorded the trial for her foreign superstition. The Palatium Britannicum in, in Rome, and, and the fact that there were British Christians in Rome in the first century, and, and their, their relation to Claudia and Linus and, and Caractacus, that is very real. And and it it, it is um, it it can be found out through historical inquiry. There's no doubt. Clifton's written essays on that topic. Oh, I'll have to uh, have a look for those and have a, have a read through those. And so it was, uh, it was after this that um, the that parts of that family came back to Britain, and then you've got the. Um, battle that you were talking about, Bill, with where they uh, massacred the Druids at, at, at Mona, and you've got uh, all these troubles between the, the Romans and the British, and then further on down the line, from the same King line, is when you get to King Lucius, who was the, the one that uh, pronounced the nation as being Christian, and apparently Bede says that that was in uh, 156 AD, and others place it at, at 137 AD. It was last week, I think I said it was uh, uh, 169 AD, but it was, apparently it was 168 AD, that um, you've got the, the Archflamens became Archbishops, and the, the heads of the Druids became the heads of the, the Celtic Church. And the, the, the three high seats of the Druids, which were London, York, and, and Carleon, became the, um, the bishoprics, and they became the, the high seats of the bishops. And you've got, um, I think, 28 bish uh, Druids at the time became, became bishops, and these three archflamens became archbishops. So this Roman excursion attacking the Druids in Mona didn't wipe the Druids out because you've still got, you know, you've still got the three main heads of Druidry all converting to um, the, the new Christianity in, in 168 AD. And you can, t you know, it had to have been a, 
a unanimous decision because part of the Normatine laws are that you know one of the most important things is the religion of the nation or the religion of the country and the only way that that can ever be changed is by a unanimous vote of the people if there was anybody that was against it then that, that, that just wouldn't have happened and it's acknowledged by various writers that, and all historians that um, the British were the first nations to call themselves Christian and that was you know, 150 years before Constantine was um, Rome or wrote Rome pronounced themselves Christian and, and this is when you you know they weren't, we weren't known as the English I think we're possibly still known as the British but you know we were known as Christians Christians was was our name that was the name for white people basically so what, what, do you were you trying to say something there Bill I no, no, you're right. <laughs> One king is not going to change the religion of a kingdom. Uh, I mean, they could make a fiat decree, but that doesn't mean the people are going to pay pay it much mind or, or go along with it. And 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 it's evident that Christianity was being persecuted in Britain as well as on the continent during the times of the persecutions and and even um. The Nennius and, and the other records that we, we cited last week had, had described that, Gildas, I believe. You know, I had a look in um, the Chronicles of England to, to see what the, you know, the original records said about Lucius and what was happening at the time. And uh, right after he dies, you've got a Roman king, Severus. So the Romans had obviously put one of their kings in charge. And the, the, the brute says that the, the Britons killed Severus. And then the Romans sent in another king who was called Alec, who did much sorrow to the Britons. So the, the Britons chose among themselves Asselpades, who raised an army and then killed, killed this Alec. And then one of his earls, who was called Cole, rebelled and killed Asselpades. And then this King Cole governed well and nobly, and he was well-beloved among the Britons. And I think this is the old King Cole was a merry old soul, was a merry old soul was he, from the nursery rhyme. So he's obviously well-remembered by the British people. And Rome were amazed that their um, centurion or, or their... Uh, commissar that they sent over to Britain had actually been killed, this Asselpades. So the next one they sent, I mean, the, the uh, Chronicles of England actually call him a prince. And the next one they sent was Prince uh, Constance. And he, was, he came to ask for the tribute that was due to Rome, because, because it had been agreed that the British people would pay tribute to Rome, but it had also been agreed that the Rome, Romans wouldn't persecute the Britons, which is what, you know, what they had been doing, especially by massacring these Druids in Mona. And this King Carl said he would pay what was rightfully due, but no more on top of that. And then he gave his daughter, Helen, to this Constance, to marry. So there was like a unity between Rome and Britain and Helen is recorded as being both fair, wise, good and well lettered. And it was this uh, Helen that was um, Constantine's mother basically. So, so you, this takes us right the way down through to Constantine who then went to Rome um, and he was the one that legalized Christianity but Constantine was brought up in a Christian family from royal blood on the British side and from the Roman side because it was a prince that was actually sent over to Britain that, that was his father this time and I've got um, I've got a, 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 a bit in the Chronicles of Britain that actually talk about what happened there is quite interesting. 
And I'll just um, read it out if I can find this bit on the page here. And this is this is what happened at the time with Constantine. After King Constance's death, Constantine, his son of St. Helen, that found the cross in the Holy Land, and how Constantine became Emperor of Rome. It befell, so in that time, there was an emperor at Rome, a Saracen, a tyrant, that we called Maxence, that put to death all that believed in God, and destroyed Holy Church by all his power, and slaughtered Christian men that he might find, and among all others, he let martyr St. Catherine, and many other Christian men that had dread of death, they fled and come into this land to King Constantine and told him of the sorrow that Maxence did to all Christianity, whereof Constantine had pity and great sorrow made and assembled a great host and great power and went over the sea to Rome and took the city and killed all that therein were miscreant that he might find. And so was he made emperor and was a good man and governed him so well that all the lands to him were untendant for to be under his government. And this devil tyrant Maxon, that so was in the land of Greece, when he heard these tidings, he became ill and suddenly died, and so he ended his life. So that's your record of how Constantine went to Britain and uh, legalized Christianity. So I mean, the, the early record that we've got here, the oldest um, British record is that he was a Christian and he went over there because of the way that the Christians were being persecuted. And a lot of people like to say that Constantine was a pagan and he only became a, a Christian on his deathbed, but the tradition at the time was that um, they would get baptized on their deathbed because they thought that, that you know, that there was a chance up until then you might make a mistake and commit another sin. So they would wait until right till the very end before they would um, take their baptism because they thought after that, that, you know, that they could never make a, you know, make a mistake again, never make a, make a sin again. So they would do that on their, on their actual deathbed. But he wasn't a pagan, he, he was Christian and his, his mother was uh, royalty from Britain and he was from this, this same long line that goes right back to um, to Caractacus at Rome and, and later on a, a few centuries later from this same line you've got King Arthur which is why King Arthur was was able to say to Rome well you pay me a tribute you owe me the tribute because I'm from this same royal family so you've got links between the, the British royal family and the uh, rulers at Rome, and I mean, after this is really the uh, Saxons and what happened with the Sax Saxon times and the, and the Saxons with the church, and there's a lot to go into there, so um, probably best not to start going into that right now. Um, do you think, Bill, or do you want to add anything to that, take, you know, just sort of taking us up to the time of King Constantine then? No, no, not really, except that um, Constantine was definitely married to a British princess. Her father's name was Colwyn, and um, is believed by a lot of medieval scholars to be the old King Cole of the nursery rhyme. Yeah, and apparently she um, she went to Jerusalem to find the, the the true cross, and she came back and she took it all around Britain. And there are there are places that are named after it after this uh, the place that she took this cross to. Okay.
I'm not I'm not sure about that. I really don't have much faith in all of the the, the relic stories and, and there are an overabundance of them. But um pilgrimages to Jerusalem were very popular of Christians of of um all ages. Even King Alfred felt he had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and he did in, in the ninth century, I believe. Well, yeah, it was embe- probably embellishment that um, she had this this cross. There were probably people there selling, you know, bits of the true cross to whoever turned up. I mean, it shows you that this this woman was a queen because again, that you you've got people that try and say that um, this Helen was a prostitute or you know she wasn't royalty or she didn't exist, you know that she didn't do these things, and yet you've got place names which prove that they did exist and she did do these things and his mother you know she was a christian and and constantine was a christian and i think they get mixed up with another constantine that was around a century or so later that um uh, wasn't such a good man as as the original constantine that might be a source of some of the um problems i've read eusebius and eusebius talks about constantine's christianity but i honestly cannot recall the details that Eusebius relates. Not that I think he's very reliable, but uh, I can't recall the details. I, I have shortcomings, I guess. That the um, that that might be a good topic for another program. Maybe we could touch on that again, and I could go and refresh myself as to Eusebius's um, relationship with Constantine, because they were that he was personally acquainted. Yeah, that would be a good one to uh, go into. I apologize, apologize if I'm talking over the top of you, Bill. It's um, very hard for me to hear what you're saying for some reason, and I'm having to mute my microphone um, when I'm not talking. That, oh, okay. Okay, that, that, that explains why you didn't hear me before, I don't think. That's okay. That's okay. We have to do what we have to do. Okay, thanks. I'm trying to download a book from um, Google right now. I'm having a hard time. It's Dickinson's Theological Quarterly, Volume 2, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about Caractacus, which may be from sources other than those which I'm already familiar with. I um, Thank you for joining me, and, and perhaps I still didn't get to the, the parts of bead that I want to that, that's that proved beyond doubt from the context of what Bede says that he's corroborating in these stories. There's two accounts where he basically corroborates what he said about Christianity in Britain back to the second century, but he does it in a different way. And I'll probably use those to open the next presentation here where perhaps we can talk about the persecution of the British, the Christian British church by the Romans, which occurred throughout and and later in history. Yeah, that would be a good one to uh, get into. The the Romans wanted to control all of Christianity and, and that they sought to stamp out the independent British Christian church. And and they did eventually, without a doubt, in in Britain and in Ireland. 
So perhaps make that the subject of our next installment of Christianity Europe. Yeah, definitely. I think that would be very interesting. And all that all has sort of happened just coming up to the time of, of Constantine when he when he was crowned king as well, his Diocletian um persecutions. And there's even records of well, there's not records of it, but it's plausible that um Saint George even came to Britain at the time and there are legends that say that he was uh, good friends with, with Constantine and whether that was from uh, well, obviously it was it was before Constantine was was crowned crowned king, but George of um, Luda in, uh, in Palestine. And again, he's supposed to be from the branch of the family that um, we got Joseph of Arimathea from, according to legends. They're all tied in, in together, these people. You know, it, it fascinates me because they're all white. They're all white people. And you, you get some... Um, I mean, these people nowadays that seem to think that they must have been Arabs, you know, or, or Palestinians. They, they weren't. They were all white people. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you cut out. But that's okay, Sven. Thanks for joining me. And, and praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for uh, inviting me on, Bill. I'm very much enjoying these um, programs. So, we'll, thanks. We'll be back in two weeks.